Welcome to the Singapore Noodles Podcast. I'm your host, Pamelia Chia, and in each episode, I speak with people who are keeping the Singaporean food heritage alive in their own way. Listen to why we should be proud of Singaporean food and why it is worthy of preservation and celebration alongside the great cuisines of the world. Today, my guest is Padawa Sani, the founder of Orang Laut SG and a fourth generation Orang Laut. Orang Laut is Malay for sea people, and it refers to the nomadic sea gypsies who lived in Singapore before British colonised Singapore. Through his platform, Fadawas hopes to spread awareness of the culture and cuisine of his people, and to tell Singaporeans that Pulau Semakau is so much more than a landfill. It was their home. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. <laughs> nice meeting you, familiar. When you followed me on Instagram, um, I was really intrigued because I didn't know much about the Orang Laots and about this particular narrative. And when I saw that you guys were serving food as well, I think I was very inspired and I really wanted to know more about you. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words. So we had a, a sharing session just the other day uh, on Saturday, right? Um, it was about for 10 people only. Um, so one of the cafes actually was nice enough to actually like, you know, I'm going to give you this space for like brunch and they actually only serve coffee, but uh, they, they were, we were fortunate enough to actually serve food for brunch. And then we were doing this short uh, storytelling session and one of your followers, I was actually saying about, uh, talking about your page. She said, oh, I think you should follow Pamela Chia. I think she's really good. And she showed me her page. She said, oh, okay, this is really interesting. So I followed it like, and that's how it came about. So I, I wasn't expecting you to follow it back. So, oh, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, and I think it's really interesting that what you're doing. Um, I, I'm happy to share a few more. You know, I've, I've heard of sea gypsies overseas. You know, I've heard stories of my friends who went to, say, Indonesia. But it was more like a touristy thing. So can you tell me a little bit more about your community and about this island that you live on? I wanted to introduce you first to my grandparents, right? My grandfather is named Rani. My, um, he, he has passed away like a couple of years ago, I think about uh, nine years now, eight, nine years. And my grandmother, she's still alive, she's 87 this year, uh, living with my aunt in Chochu Karov. So as you know today, right, Pulau Macau is a landfill. Mm. Um, a lot has changed. Um, I think for Pulau Macau, it has now been reclaimed and Pulau Seke and Pulau Macau has joined into one to make sure that you know they, they, they have enough space to function as a landfill. So my grandparents, um, we were asked to leave the island in the, the year about 1974-1975 and then um, because at the point of time, right, they were about 60 plus years old already and they didn't know anything else, right? You cannot ask um, you know, people who live in the, in the sea uh, for like all their life and go, go, go to, 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 to Singapore and function and they, they couldn't. So all they knew was like, you know, to get income uh, by seafood, you know, do the odd jobs at the sea, etc. And so my grandfather went back. Uh, he was like, you know what, I'm going back to the, to the island and I'm just going to stay on the boat um, for like um, many, many years. Um, from 1977 to 1991, he was out at sea with my, with my grandmother. There was no electricity, there's no water. And they basically survived like how they did then, you know, like, like nomads, like how wrong I would work. One neighboring island, which is Pulau Bukom, right, they also supplied uh, water 
mm. fresh water to the all the southern islands and this was the only um, island that actually supplied water so we would travel back and forth to the different islands to get our supplies the life back then was very simple um, it's basically focusing on like fishing the things that we, 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 we knew and like uh, okay when we, we, we talk about we talk about um, the, the types of fish we'll catch um, the type of seafood you will catch during the time of the day, etc., and how to get it, the techniques, and what best is cooked for. And they basically just like take the cucumber, cut it, and they eat it, um, smothered in sambal, and just eat it fresh, mm. like that. I, I tasted it when I was younger. So back then, when they were growing up um, at, at the island itself, right, and a nurse will come once a week to tend to their medical needs. La. Anyone wants to see the doctor, she'll just be there for uh, in the clinic itself. Back then, if let's say someone's giving birth and but the water was super choppy because of monsoon season, there'll be no nurse uh, for the week. After 1991 onwards, we were not allowed to go back to the island anymore. Because of that, uh, also my, my grandfather's health deteriorated and he, uh, he stayed mostly in, in, in Tlok Blanga. So my grandparents had about 10 children, right? So in totality, they have about uh, 12 people. Uh, and when they, were, when they left the island at a point in time, um, it was about 12 people living in a one-room flat. Because that's the only thing they can afford, right? When they were living the island, there wasn't any cost involved. Um, they basically get necessities based from based on like uh, what they need for the day. They live for the day basically, um, and the, they get sustenance based from uh, from the sea itself. Um, but when they went back to the flat, um, because the only thing they can afford was a one flat, mm. and yeah, so if he found it really hard to actually stay there. My main purpose of this project, right, is to tell people that Pulau Sumatera is more than, more than a landfill. That's my key objective. Because right now, the narrative today, if you, talk, if you hear the word Pulau Sumatera, people would think, that, oh, the landfill, right? And it actually, personally, right, I feel like it gets really annoying to me. <laughs> I have to explain to them that no, plus Macau used to be a home. Then used to then you be like you used to stay in a rubbish uh, in the landfill. I said no, it was not landfill then, right? And I, I find it a bit offensive that um, this narrative has not been shared. And I feel that as the fourth generation around Laut, and I, I feel like it's my it's my responsibility to actually share the story. If it's not going to be the government government responsibilities, right? Also, we do have the experience and we need to share our first-hand experience at the island itself. I think if you go to the NHB's website, right, they did mention something about Pulau's Macau and the natives of Pulau's Macau, but it's basically just a footnote, right? Um, the Orang Laut community has assimilated uh, within the Malay community in Singapore. And that's it. Like, how can we expand that narrative? Can we talk more about the people who live there and you know how they live their life and the Singapore them? Because I think this story needs to be told. And it's not only coming from my family, it should come from everyone else, right? Um, from the neighboring islands as well. So um, at the peak of Los Macau, um, there were about 600 villages altogether. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then my, my grandparents were the last to leave because they were just very defiant. Um, and I think they, they got the notification in like early ni- 1970s whereby they told the village chief um, gathered everybody for like a informal meeting to say that, you know, the JTC has um, sent us a letter to say that everyone has to evacuate the island, etc. And, you know, 
of course, they were opposing views. People didn't want to leave. Some of them didn't want to leave. But um, they tried to talk to the village chief, but there's nothing that they can actually do. Mm. And when they, when they left, um, my grandparents were compensated uh, a little bit of money. Of course, they were asked like, no, they asked you to leave, right? Did they buy you a house? No, they didn't buy you a house. You got to purchase your own flat. Um, and secondly, were you given money? Yes, you were given money. But the way, the way they calculated um, the compensation, right, is that my, I think my grandparents' house was about 40 feet in length, in totality. Um, so they counted that. And they counted like uh, the number of uh, fruit-bearing trees in the surrounding area. For example, there are coconut trees and mango trees. They would give about $25, $30 for each tree. And in totality, my grandparents got about three dollars to $4,000 um, amongst like 12 people. It's not, and so they had to, re- from, they used the money to actually re- relocate. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was a struggle, right? In terms of like um, skill set as well, most of my uncles, my, my mom even, uh, only studied up to like primary six. And the skill set that they knew then wasn't um, based on, you know, industry needs, right? So what they knew was basically fishing and um, living for the day. And of course, these skill sets, like the only skill sets that I've learned from generation from my ancestors, from my grandparents, are now in Boyla because they, they need they need to be able to survive the the city life. So the first thing that <laughs> the first thing that uh, crossed their mind, um, which is my mom and my aunts, um, is that how are they going to find food in in in, in Singapore? Like uh, at the island itself, you can actually find food. You know, whatever you want to eat, you can. Uh, you can just find it if you want to eat sotong hitam, which is a black squid dish, right? Yeah. They will literally go out at sea at 2 a.m. in the morning and then the next morning you'll cook it. Because, you know, that's what that's what they did then. Lah. So, in Singapore, it's a bit different. You cannot just, you know, climb a mango tree or coconut tree and just eat it, right? <laughs> so, the two is sometimes to adapt. Lah. And then, uh, because of that, also, the skill set, they had to work like laborious jobs, like, you know, paint walls, be a cleaner, work in factories, etc., just to make ends meet because they have commitments now, you know, and they, they need to adapt to the city life. And it's, interestingly, uh, my mom and my aunt told me that they, it took about one or two years to learn to use the washing machine because everything was hand-washed then. And at the, in the flat itself, they still were hand-washing their clothes, etc. Yeah, and I think at the point in time um, when they were here at the island, right, before they left, uh, they were given a form to fill up. Like, Okay, this form, you can choose the location that you want and the size of the flat. You have the liberty to choose. Like, of course, like this, my, my, my family members, they look at the price at the point in time, like, I, I can't remember, it's like less than $100,000 or was it $25,000 uh, about there. It scares them. Like, they can't even barely find $100 to last the whole week or the whole month, right? $25,000 scares them a little bit. So, so they got like the cheapest one, which is, which is about a two-room flat or one-room flat. And then uh, everyone's kids squeeze in. Some of the, our neighbors also live around Tulubanga area. Um, some of them live at Clementi, West Coast, and also Taman Jurong. Because these areas are near the Pasir Panjang port, right? Where most of the boats are docked. So they can actually travel back to go fishing, etc. Like how they want to, like, if they can. Usually, right, um, over the weekend, what we would do is... Um, we will go to the island itself, spend the night there or a couple of nights. Even during like school holidays, we just spend like many, many nights just staying there, uh, relieving our, our kampong days. Lah. Of course, it's not legal. It's not allowed to because we're asked to evacuate the island, right? But we just wanted to because that's what 
that's what we knew and that was our livelihood our life um um yeah so over the weekends we would just spend a lot of time uh, if it's not going to be pulau smakau right it's going to be near pulau smakau or pulau hantu mm. um yeah i just said that pulau hantu is a neighboring island which which has like white sandy beaches uh, and we went there to like catch a lot of like um, seashell, no, seaport lah, um, mm. sea snails. Yes. Yeah, I've eaten those before. Very tasty. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I love seaport. Like, you know, lalas and clams and stuff like yeah. that. So we just dig up from the sand, etc. So the kind of thing that we did, right, which was very, very special to me because I got to experience things that um, kids today would not be able to experience. Like you go out to catch your own um, food and then you just get super excited until you go home um, by the bus and then you pass it to your grandmother or your mom and they'll cook it for you. You know, things like that. So, which is what I treasure most because it's like from, you kind of know like, the, 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 the importance of um, food. And you talked about how, you know, you go back to the island once a year to visit and how, you know, people's impression of the island is that it's a landfill. And for you, you know, as you go back every year, what are the kind of sentiments that you carry with you? So wait, I need to clarify first, when you go back to the island, right, it's not at the island itself, it's just nearing the island where we know that um, this is the best spot to fish. Because Pulas Macau, there are a few areas that has like uh, best fishing spots, and um, I think my, my uncle knows them um, because that's where he grew up in. Um, I think the first few emotions when we go back to Island Rive, um, it we it is have to be happy la. I mean, we're happy we're there. We're happy where we are back to where we were. I know it used to be our home, um, but of course it comes with sadness as well because it has changed so drastically, and sometimes we were. We don't purposely go to near to the shore area or rather like to, to, to the side of um, where the, our house used to be. And everything was, has changed. It's basically just vegetation now. Um, so sometimes my, my mother and my aunt, we would go to Pulau Smakau and we just dock our boat uh, ever so uh, shortly, right? To just get this uh, type of um, fruit. I, there's a name for it. I, I can't remember what it's called. So it's a, it's a very sour fruit that is native to Pulau Smakau. So they will eat it um, because it's like super sour. I don't know why they like it. Like. I tried it. Like, it's just a super sour fruit that actually grows on the island. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it grows in Singapore. Maybe it does. But um, yeah, if time we go back to the island, we would try to forage for uh, this, kind, this, type of, this type of ingredients. And are those ingredients really central to the to your cooking? And is it easy? I mean, given that it's difficult to source in Singapore, how do you retain the essence of your cuisine without those ingredients? Um, so I think the the main ingredients, right, um, that we use is actually seafood, um, which thankfully can be found in supermarket. But of course, you have to really source out for the freshest one, the, the best ones. To, in order to for us to retain the kind the type of food that we had back then la. because back then it's basically uh, farm to table right you, you catch it or rather see to table <laughs> you catch it and then you cook it um, well, which is super what we used to la. and of course we can actually taste the difference between is it fresh is, is it is it good quality seafood etc it's because uh, we have learned from experience or rather we, we have been blessed by the freshness of seafood at one time um, how we retain it is through the methods of cooking. Um, the, the one that I mentioned to you was actually a fruit which, on, which only we 
can be found there, I believe. Um, I, may be, I may be wrong, but um, you know, they, they kind of know like, the tree, some of the trees actually bear the fruit, so they'll just go back to the island and eat that. But uh, it's not essential to the cooking. Uh, it's just basically like a mid-afternoon snack that you want to nibble on. Yeah, but all the ingredients can still be found in Singapore, um, except for a few dishes that we eat like maybe once a year. Mm. Um, so we do eat like puffer fish. The Japanese one. Uh, it's, no, it's not the raw kind where you eat sashimi, no. <laughs> yeah, but but it's it's a pufferfish lah. So we, we do eat kampung tau, which is pufferfish. Um, my 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 grandparents, uh, learn how to, you know, remove the poison. Ah, uh, I I previously yeah. watched a video um on this kind of pufferfish in the Philippines and how they actually process it before cooking. I think it's very similar to what you're describing. Like it has spines, right? That you have to remove in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. There are many different types of pufferfish. Uh, some of the fish, some of the pufferfish, uh, are not poisonous, or rather, like less poisonous. So, and some of the puff, like the spiny ones, you have to remove the poison because that's a poisonous type, um, I believe. So, um, the the way to take out the poison is uh, there's a, like a small uh, part where you gotta cut it out and. And only my uncle knows how to how, how to do it. So it becomes like a very family effort, right? So my my relative would actually go out to sea and set traps. So in order to catch pufferfish, sometimes by catch, by luck, sometimes it can be by catch. But most of the time, you have to set traps. Like it's called bubu. So yeah. you set the bubu, and then um, the pufferfish will come, and then you will trap it, and then you get it, right? So we call our uncle, okay, we call pufferfish, please come down at a certain time to take out the poison. So my mom will, will be ready with all the knives and equipments at home, and then the pufferfish is there. So she will, then he will go there and, like, with his glasses and torchlight and take, off the, take out the poison. Yeah. And my mom will be preparing all the ingredients, and then they, they will cook it with kangkong, with, like, uh, lemongrass, etc. And we will pack uh, individually. Um, to give like our different family members, so it becomes like a very <laughs> huge effort when we catch a pufferfish, lah. So I think it's like a delicacy for us because it's not every day we will get to eat pufferfish, right? But we love the dish so much. When was the last time you had this dish? Uh, I think early this year when um my cousin caught a pufferfish. Oh wow! I think it's so rare. Like, I mean, if you talk about, I mean, because I'm in the F&B industry, and you know, chefs they're always craving for like new, exotic ingredients. So why is it that no one has, you know, come across or like started using these kind of fishes? I think pufferfish. Um, first of all, in Singapore, you need certification to remove the poison, right? You need to be certified. Not everybody can sell pufferfish. Not every um, restaurant can actually sell pufferfish. You need to be properly certified. Um, I'm, I'm sure you know that, right? So also, we are may not like officially certified, lah. We just learn it because that's what our our ancestors taught us to do, right? And we eat it within the family itself. So of course, when I introduce the food, I don't really want. I cannot introduce uh, pufferfish, even though that this is the original orang laut food. Um, you know, we, we try to go with the safer route by, you know, we have the squid, the, the, the sotong and tamas, which is still the very essence of orang laut food. Yeah. Yeah, you talked about the indigenous know-how, right, of the orang laut. And I think it's very, like, it. there's so, so many parallels between your story and what I hear in Australia, because I'm not sure if you know, but there are also indigenous people in Australia. Like, the narrative became more of... Um, you know, these white people came and like they kind of educated or they kind of taught 
the native people new skills. But in fact, like the native people had a lot of original skills and know-how. Um, I was earlier reading this book uh, about the Australian indigenous people, about how they were really skilled at art and food and agriculture and all of those things because they had such a close relationship with nature. Right. So I think um, when we were growing up at the island itself, it's basically um, sourcing out for food. It will be the, the how to fish, um, how, how you're going to trap a certain kind of uh, seafood, for example, and where to find them. Is it low tide? Is it high tide? And sometimes, like, even we reel in the fish, we know the type of fish already by the way it's, uh, it, it's some, you know, it tucks, it tucks your bait. Yeah. Um, you know, the certain fish actually was just snap it up, and you know, okay, this is gonna be the the type of fish that that, that we want. And if it, you know, it takes small bites, small bites, small bites, and then just go for the one big bite, it's a different type of fish. So I I learned that I said, oh, okay, like now it becomes a pattern. Like now we understand. Um, and most of the time we, we use line fishing. There wasn't any rod. Um, my and we we know where to set traps. And um, there are many, many ways that uh, we learn how to catch different types of seafood, right? Um, for example, last time, um, I think I, I witnessed this and my, my parents shared with me this as well. Um, they will set up like two long poles um, and then they will put like uh, the netting in the water. Yeah. And so they, they will like, they will see the fish, right? And what they will do is they will, I think... Uh, hit the water and the fish will, 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 will get scared, right? So they will jump onto the net. Oh. So they just reach around. Yeah, oh. so, so that's what they do. And um, I think the other one was uh, spearfishing. Mm. So yeah, my grandparents will just dive into the water and just spearfish and catch a fish like immediately. No, she doesn't even wear goggles. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, things like that. So, you know, there, there are many skills that they learn just by doing. And it's not that, you know, they, were, they we, we learn special, special skills, but it's basically because of the way of life and because of, yeah, for sustenance, right? It's just yeah. because of survival. Mm. And do you feel like it's a waste that these skills are not kind of um, widely, widely understood or, you know, that these skills have not reached the wider community in Singapore? Um, yeah, definitely, right? Because the, for, for us, is does, does this apply to the Singapore context? Um, can you actually use these skills to climb the corporate ladder? I don't think so. Which um, <laughs> is very sad. Lah. No, that's why I feel like some of these things um, are meant to be preserved. Like, you know, the Rangal community. Um, I, I'm very thankful that Pulau Ubin is still Pulau Ubin. I'm sure there have been developments. I'm sure it was very different back then. But I think the government tried to do, tried to conserve them. But it is only Pulau Ubin, right? Um, why not Los Macau and other islands, etc.? Um, of course, in the name of progress, um, we lost a lot of things. We lost the character of uh, Singapore. And I feel like the narrative in Singapore is so pro-progress that we somehow uh, shun away the real people, the real stories of Singaporeans. Yeah, and I, also in Singapore, um, more and more people are so pro-progress, like um, my, my friends, for example, right? So they, okay, I need to understand money by a certain age, etc. And it's not only 
um, the Malays, right? It's also like the, the, the Chinese, the Indians, etc. It's just this common mentality that we have, the mindset. Mm. And while we are doing that, I feel like we are losing ourselves or identity. Mm. The Malays will become Malays. And so actually, we have many subcultures within the Malay community, like the Boyanese, the Bugis, the Javanese, um, uh, etc. The Malays, of course. The Malays, we are the origin. My grandparents are the original Malays, Malays, but right now it's just basically Malay. But there's many different uh, subcultures within the Malay ethnic group. Same goes for the um, Chinese, where right? they have the Hokkien's, Cantonese, etc. So I think it's very important to preserve this and to identify the differences between these subcultures and celebrate all of them. Because I think um, it's getting oversimplified in Singapore, you know, and also it doesn't help that. Um, you know, within Singapore, the, the narrative that turns out every single year is that, you know, we are a four-race system and it is it is just that. But there are many subcultures to that. Mm, definitely. I feel that, you know, what you're saying really resonates with me. And I really see that so many things have been lost in the name of progress, you know, in terms of culture and how homogenized society is becoming, you know, the loss of dialects, the loss of, you know, having that really specific identity that you were talking about. Yeah. I guess you talked about how being a, an Orang Lawu is not just a race, you know, you don't see it as a race, you see it as more of a lifestyle. So yeah. how do you bring that lifestyle and thrive within... A society like Singapore that's so corporate, like what you said. Yeah, so I think that's a difficult part, right? How can you still retain your identity as Orang Lawut mm. and make sure that it's being recognized and, and people know that there, there is a stark difference between everyday Malays and Orang Lawut. So the only thing, two things I can do I, that I know how is, first of all, is to share our experience and our stories. And secondly, is for them to acknowledge or rather try that, you know, our, our cuisine is different from other Malay cuisines. Mm. You know, um, though, you know, the, the type of, um, the type of dishes are more or less the same, but it's the way it's cooked, which is different. Mm. So my grandmother will use, to make the paste, right, they will use butter as some blender back then, and they, they, they will use the ingredients that they have and, and gilling them, gilling them until they get it, uh, right? Everything was somewhat fre- very fresh, lah. And um, they complement everything with sauces and paste, like the sambal. And of course, my grandmother uh, made them the best. And um, this was a technique we learned from many, many years ago. Um, even through like this, uh, my great-grandparents, right? Um, because I asked my grandma, grandma once, like, who taught you how to make this sambal bachan? And she's like, huh? My mother lah. <laughs> kind of thing. It's like very casually, right? Then I'll ask my mom, like, how do you make sambal bachan? She's like, yeah, my grandma taught me lah. I mean, like my, like my grandmother, right? So she, the girls in the family, um, they they were not allowed to study beyond primary six, mm. and they were they were supposed to you know take care of the family and the brothers, cook for the family. So a lot of responsibilities lies on my parents and uh, sorry my mom and my aunts' uh, shoulders, right? Because they were the, one of the older women, so they had to do all this stuff. So they they had to learn how to cook. My grandmother was very fierce back then. So this was my grandmother. She make them, you know, sit by the stove, open fire to make sure that the, the, the rice has a proper cook, things like that. And she make sure that everything that she learned, she, she, everything that she's cooking, right, they have to wash and learn. A lot of the ingredients are very simple, like uh, ginger, kunyit. I don't know what kunyit is in English. Uh, Kalangal. 
Is it turmeric? Ah, yes, turmeric. Yeah, turmeric. Yeah, turmeric. Um, you know the onions rolls. It's very very simple ingredients, right? Um, that they they can they can be found in the island, lah. Um, and then my my grand, I asked my grandmother, like, or I asked my mom, like, because we have dishes like uh that involve pineapple, which is a like gulai nanas, right? So I asked her like, for the gula nanas, uh, where do you get pineapples from? Um, so apparently they had a very small plantation that was owned by a, a Chinese merchant. Mm. So sometimes um, they, when they, during the monsoon season, right, if let's say they cannot go out to see to catch fish, right, so they will, work, they will do odd jobs. They will go to this plantation to help them collect fruits, to help them to, you know, at the provision shop, and then in return, they'll get pineapples or they get like, this kind of items or rice even so um, they won't get money so and they'll cook it right all these dishes so uh, everything was found within the island itself so uh, a lot of cooking is based on seafood and also vegetable very simple simple dishes yeah but actually the, the paste the, the, the taste is very potent la. It's, 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 it's very prominent my grand, grand um, grandparents have about 50 or so grandkids oh my goodness okay. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Sometimes I don't remember my cousins as well. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, which is which is great, right? But because um, you know the family is so big, um, they are all doing their own things, and I feel like the uh, we can't come together as much as we want to, uh, which is sad. So we only come visit each other's houses during Hari Raya whenever we can, right? So that kind of communal feeling is disappearing. Mm. Uh, also because we are all scattered over Singapore. La. Also my cousins, also the fourth generation of Rong uh, All of them are living in a city now and they are very old. Having, some of them have their own kids, you know, running their own things. Thankfully, I'm not married. So I have the time to actually do this. And most of them, um, when we meet, right, all we talk about is that, you know, oh, life back then was so far, lost Marco. We miss it a lot, right? We talk about it all the time because this is what we grew up with. And then... Um, for my 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 brother who lives in the east because he lives in the west for for him for us to entice him to come to my to our house right to say oh um mom got cooked like uh ketam lemak so okay i'm coming things like that right so it's these dishes will actually bring people together our food makes us who we are and you know our it basically shapes our identity and uh as you as I've shared earlier, right, the kind of dishes that we are created, we have we have been creating, or we have we are currently eating, it basically revolves around seafood and like very simple ingredients. Gulananas is essentially um, pineapples and in in like corn broth, um, and then sometimes to make it like uh, a full meal, right, we add like uh, ikan kambong, like which is a type of fish, small type of fish, and it becomes just a full meal on its own. And we just eat with blachan. Uh, very simple dishes. Um, which is uh, Malay cuisine, right? Mm. But we emphasize a lot on the, 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 the thickness of the asam pedas, the taste of asam pedas, the spiciness, because you have to make it spicy because asam pedas, you have to work pedas in it, you better be pedas. <laughs> and, and, and the type of fish as well. Like the, the fish, right, matters. Like when we go fishing, right, um, you know, we catch different type of fish. I'll ask my grandmother, uh, like, can I make asam pedas with this? I said, no, son cannot. So she knows what, what type of fish can make asam pedas and can go with asam pedas. Actually, the best is actually catfish. Mm. Um, catfish makes the best asam pedas, especially when they have roe, the catfish roe. Mm. It's like super delicious. Yeah. Uh, the meat is just super tender and soft. Yeah, but 
it is not for everybody. Not everybody likes to eat catfish. Um, mm. I have to point out. And also because like the bone is actually very, very small and, and soft. Um, some people might have trouble eating it. But we love it. Like, we don't have to eat it because we eat it with our pants, right? Asam rebus, kacang panjang asam rebus. It's basically long beans mm. um, on like, uh, in like a uh, light palm broth. And then it's basically very soupy. Just eat it with fries and like uh, fried fish, uh, dried fried fish and some sa- blachan. It's, it's, it's a very simple dish that I love so much growing up. Lah. Um, and I think our favorite one is actually the uh, sotong hitam. Mm. Sotong hitam is our favorite because like um, through people when I was growing up, um, when I made sotong hitam, right, I go to the nasi padang stall. It doesn't taste the same. And I often wonder and I get very angry. Like, why is sotong hitam so, so different from my family? So like, I go back and complain and say, I mean, it's the way they cook. Lah. It's just, you know, it's different. Um, and and I, when I get older, I, I, I start questioning how they cook it. Like, why is it different and stuff like that. So I learned that my mother um, and my aunt, we would actually inspect the squid um, itself, right? The type of squid, it matters. It's, so people would think sotong is just sotong, right? But there's actually many variations of sotong. There's a chomai, there is the sotong nose, there's sotong batu, etc. All these names that they've learned from the island itself. So they know like which one produces the most squid which will um, turn into like the best sotong hitam. Lah. The other dish is uh, sambal udang. Mm. Uh, of course, sambal udang uh, is a common Malay dish, right? We are fun- fundamentally Malay, so our dishes are Malay. Our ancestors came from Biao, which is Indonesia. Um, so they, most, of, most of them are like, um, you know, people of sea gypsies, sea gypsies who travel. So the people of Riau, they, they are known to like travel about. They don't stay at one place. But my great grandparents live locate, relocated at Blocks uh, Macau. Mm. Yeah. And um, this ketam lemak is basically um, lemak, lah. Uh, you know, coconut gravy. Uh, super delicious and we emphasize we use only flour, flour crabs because it's actually sweeter and only the males uh, if you have the female one the egg is, is a bonus right um, but we, 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 we use males because um, during, during in Singapore itself um, it's, it's quite hard to get like females and most of the time the females don't have uh, meatier meat uh, so we use males you know so um, these are the key main dishes. Of course, I have the siput sedot, which I think, um, so for the, the story about siput sedot, interestingly, is um, when they want to eat siput sedot, so at the back of Pulau Macau, there's actually a mangrove. Mm. Um, so they would have to, you know, go to, go to the mangrove area during low tide to collect all the siput sedot. And then um, what they would do is put all these, um, the snails into a pail mm. and they would put coconut shavings so they will feed them coconut shavings, right? Oh. Um, so they, yeah, so they will eat them, and then they will uh, basically shed off all their dirt and eat the coconuts. Oh. Yeah, so they eat for a day, they eat for a day, and then um, the next day they will chop them and then they cook, cook them because every single snail, right, you gotta chop the end so you can suck it. Yeah, yeah. So it's very painstaking, lah. You gotta chop, chop, chop something like because we, we do this dish, we do uh, offer these dishes on the weekend, right? If anyone wants to try, you can, can just order from outside. Yeah. And then I can hear my mom like chopping it at like 4 a.m. in the morning. You know? So, oh my god, please gonna come. <laughs> yeah, so. I relate to the yeah. because there was once I made um, seafood for staff meal because I, I, I work as a chef. 
So back then, um, when I was working in Singapore, I made this uh, seafood dish for staff meal. It was like a stir-fried seafood dish. And because you, right, know, right. you eat both the front of house and back of house, it was so tiring. You have like a limited time to prepare staff meal. So I was so stressed. <laughs> I didn't realize how much work went into it. Yeah, so you got to chop it every single one, right? Oh my God. <laughs> oh, props for you. Props to you. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I imagine you guys selling this dish. It must be so painstaking. It is lah, but but it, I think it's such an important dish that we want to share because um, on my website itself, I don't really want to talk about only about the dish. I want to talk about how my my parents actually uh, got got their seafood. Um, I wanted to have like a narrative behind every dish, um, which I try to um, add. So, for like for example, if you look at the sotong hitam. Um, most of the time, they would go out at night to actually catch a squid um, because they're actually attracted to uh, light, right? Yeah. So you put like the, you put light by the boat and then they'll come and just scoop it up, um, things like that. So there's many ways of actually catching a different type of seafood. Um, I wanted to highlight that. So basically, by introducing the food, I can introduce a story as well. I feel like there's so much to talk about based on what you just shared, you know? You talked about how you... You guys kind of assimilated into the Malay community and that when you see sotong hitam on the menu, you kind of, um, you, you feel like, why is it not cooked in the way that my family used to cook it? So do you guys see yourself as Malay? I mean, I guess the Singapore government kind of forced you guys to categorize yourself as that, but do you see yourselves as the same as uh, a typical Singaporean Malay? Mm, okay, I think it's a very good question because I think, I think this is a question about identity, right? Um, I think Malay is a race and we are Orang Melayu, we, we are Malays and we recognize that. Um, and I think Orang Lao is a way of life, is how we were brought up. And of course, some of them, right, the, the, the understanding of Orang Lao, see gypsies, is essentially, um, is a, like, it could be tribal as well, but there are... Orang Laut Seleta, which is a different community, which actually um, situated at uh, the streets of Johor, Johor mm. I think Johor in Singapore, and they are they are being recognized as one of the orang eighteen orang Aslis in Malaysia, which is fantastic, right? So they, they have like a recognition there. But for pe- the orang Laut of Singapore, or people, or rather the people who live in the island, the islanders, um, actually they call themselves orang Pulau. Mm. Um, orang Pulau is people of the island. Um, including us as well, we 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 are citizens of orang orang pulau. But um, I think the way that we live is an identity. And um, I asked my mom, my aunt, like, do do we do we relate ourselves as orang laut? And I said, yeah. I mean, the sea is what we know, right? That's how we that's how we live back then. And and we understand and we respect the sea so much, the kind of uh, life that it can actually give and provide. Um, that we somehow you know, relate to the word around loud and it's, it, it is our identity. Mm. But now that you are living, you know, you, have, you guys have been scattered all over Singapore and some of you are far away from the sea. How do you still connect with that part of your identity given that the sea is such a big part of who you are? Mm. So I think there are many ways that we are still connected. Um, first of all, we acknowledge that, you know, the our history and our past, right? Uh, and where we come from. And of course, having my grandmother still being alive, it's, uh, it's, it's such a blessing to me. 
um, because I'm able I'm able to share um, moments with her still, and we, we kind of have this connection with her, right? And I think it was uh, we also very fortunate to actually share to grow up the island itself. So when we meet, we kind of know you know where we are from and who we are. Um, in terms of identity, we, of course. We live in the island for we live in Singapore for so long, longer than we live at the island itself. Um, I'm talking about the fourth generation. Um, do or do we do have we fully assimilated ourselves into the city? Yes, we have, but does that change anything about who we are or our, our identity? No, it doesn't at all because we 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 try to actually go back to Pulau Semakau, our neighboring islands, to go fish once once a year or so. And thankfully, my one of my uncles still owns like a sampan and a boat, mm-hmm. like a boat. Um, and we go back like once a year to to go fishing together, uh, to do things that we once had, um, we once did at the island itself. Do you feel that prior to your platform, there have been people who have been actively doing something for your community as well? To be honest, I haven't gotten that far in terms of research. Mm-hmm. Um, I I only did it, started this is because I. I wanted to do this for the longest time, for many, many years really. And it all started because um, my friend, um, who is also a Malay person, so uh, we were just hanging out and I told him that I'm going to go home because I, I, I want to eat gulan danas. I'm very excited for it. And he was like, what's gulan danas? So I spent about 15 minutes explaining to him what's gulan danas and I got a bit flustered because I was like, how can you know gulan danas? It's a Malay day. So I had this idea that all Malay cuisine is the same, lah. but it's just not true. That made, he made me realize that it's not. And I was actually very shocked um, because I think um, because of uh, the country we live in, right, it basically paints a, a picture that all Malay cuisine is the same, but it's not true at all. And I wanted to prove that point, I wanted to make that point. That's so why I wanted to introduce them to people of Singapore, the different um, cooking of uh, the Malay subgroup. Also, um, because of COVID, I was very, it's actually a double-edged sword. Um, it actually gives, gives us like a little bit more time to actually uh, do the things that I want to do because I'm working from home, right? So in the evening, I can actually do things. Or, you know, for example, like it has progressed now to having a conversation with you, someone who is based in Australia, which is great, talking about my culture. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, it's just, it's just from that idea and that free, free little time that I have, and also I was actually sparked by the Pranakan issue, the saga of um, in, that happened recently. I'm not sure if you know about that. Yeah, I, know. Um, I think it's Violet. Yeah, calling <laughs> the nasi ambang uh, Pranakan nasi ambang, right? So I think the Malay community in Singapore got a little bit of annoyed there. Mm. And then I was like, oh my god, we can't. So I, I realized that, you know what, the, the thing is, right, it's good that we are getting more and more vocal and territorial about our cuisine, um, rightly so, because we need to protect them. It, it's nothing to do with, like, um, you know, Malays versus Pranakan, etc. It's yeah. about identity and owning it, right, and acknowledging that this comes from a certain uh, community. So, and I think, as me, as a fourth generation, if I'm not going to share this, uh, no one will. I think it will stop with me just yeah. because I feel like right now my nieces and my nephews, they are living in Singapore, they are so far-fetched from, you know, life at the island itself. Mm. Um, and they, they didn't get to experience that, right? So for me, I got, I got a little bit of a taste of how life was until like I was nine years old and then I grew up in Singapore. And But how can I actually share my experiences and what I've learned at the island 
uh, to, to do the masses in Singapore. And I think these stories, these stories have to be told. And um, I, I believe that a lot of responsibilities uh, come to me just because I'm the fourth generation around Laut. And my, my parents, they are they're like already 60 plus. Mm. And they don't have energy to actually do these kind of things, right? And my uncles as well. Yeah. You know, they're all trying to live their life. And um, also, I, come, I, I have to acknowledge that I'm pretty privileged to be able to share my stories. I have to acknowledge that um, because my, my work, right, uh, what I've learned, what I know, has um, massively contributed to this uh, just because um, a lot of my cousins don't have the same privilege as I do. Mm. And, you know, it's very hard from someone who coming from the island, especially having parents who are less educated, and you know it's it's very hard to break from the poverty cycle, and a lot of my cousins are experiencing that. And of course, I try to support them as much as possible in terms of like, you know, get, trying to push them towards like a certain career path or certain um, education uh, system, right? Just to make sure that it's it's a bit better in into the uh, Singaporean education system. Mm. But um, it is very hard to break the poverty cycle. So it's very very hard. So, um, and thankfully, I I did have very supportive friends when I was growing up. And um, they actually led me to a path that um, I was interested in, and, and because of that, right? Um, I, what that's why I'm highlighting that this is this comes from a place of privilege and luck. I think uh, to have met such people who are supportive of me being better, lah. Um, and I think if I'm not gonna do it, um, my cousin can't. They they couldn't because um, it was still just within the family, and 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 it happens not only to my family, right? It happens to like many different around local communities as well. Mm. Um, of course, I'm not doubting that um, it might be very different for them. Some of them are actually very successful. But um, I think for me, it's really important that the, share, the stories are being shared. Yeah, I think, you know, when I first came across your platform and your website, I was just blown away by the marketing because I feel that, like, a lot of times when, say, the government tries to share about a part of, of a facet of Singaporean culture or heritage, it can come across as very forced. But when I look at your platform, everything feels very heartfelt and very genuine. And yet it's very tastefully done with the food styling and the marketing. And I actually saw some of the photos of people trying your food. And I saw that you kind of gift, gifted them postcards like uh, with photos of your family. Um, and I thought it was yeah. such a sweet touch. Yeah, because I, I didn't want um, the stories to just end there, right? Um, I wanted to give a little bit of memento. So the postcard is basically photos of my family members, my grandparents, and the bags. Just like a thank you note of sorts. So um, I hope that, you know, and I, I focus on like communal eating. So it, uh, there's the food that we offer, right? It's basically for bigger packs. Um, we want to make sure that when they eat it, right, they talk about our stories. Um, there, there's something to talk about and what Orang Lao is all about. So it's not about just, of course, it's about eating and celebrating the food, but it's also, I hope, um, you know, they can actually learn something, they can actually share and, you know, it, it will spread from there. And if they don't order the food, I'm totally fine. At least they share with us, uh, they share with other people our story and what we, who, who we are and where we came from. And that's really important to me. Mm. And is there like a final end point or a goal or like a like a final, I wouldn't say outcome, but like a, what what would be your dream for this platform? Uh, first, I think I I just started this like what three months ago. Yeah. So 
I, I do have like lofty goals, but um, I try to be very realistic about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but of course, um, I would want to be able to like set up like a small shop and my mom and dad can run it. Um, you know, then they can actually sell own loud food, the cuisine, like how the Pranakan does very well. <laughs> you know? Like, um, yeah, and, and I think if if you could actually do that, right, share a little bit of our cuisine and, and our lifestyle back then, that's a big win for me. And essentially, I also want, I want to introduce eventually like um, the different types of cooking, the own loud cooking, be it yeah. by a book, um, and ultimately, um, the... To have a cookbook is not only about cook, um, just the cookbook itself, but it's going to be storytelling. So it's going to be all the stories that we're going to tell at the island itself. Um, and eventually, you know, it comes with recipes that they can actually try. Mm. Yeah. And make like Orang Laut Cuisine a norm in Singapore. Mm. But I think it's fantastic, you know, as long as this can be a sustainable platform, I think it's a story that people would love to know because... So much of our history textbooks don't cover this narrative. And recently I was um, watching this play by Wild Rice. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's called Madeka. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Yeah, I've yeah. heard of it. Yeah. But it's basically talking about the, pretty much, you know, that kind of story, lah, which is that, that before the British came, you know, there was already a very thriving community in Singapore that flourished. Yeah. And yeah, like sadly that doesn't make it into our history textbook. So does it make you angry when, you know, you you realize that there was so much disparity between uh, the public perception of our history versus what really happened? Um, yeah, because, you know, when I was growing up, um, it has always been, you know, we need to learn. It's always post-war, right? Yeah. Um, um, and Japanese occupation and then independence, etc. Um, am I angry all the time? <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, it's not only about um, my story, right? It's also the stories of other uh, native Singaporeans. Like, I, I wanted to find out, like, what happened to the time when Sangnila Utama came over? You know, who, who were the people living there? And um, do we even have this kind of narrative being told or being shared, etc.? So I think there's many, many uh, ideas to it. Mm-hmm. And I think um, um, one of the, I'm not sure if you know, one of the islands were actually being sold to BP for oil reclamation, which is a neighboring island in one of the southern islands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Pulau, I can't remember, I think it was Bukoma Bukoma Sikijang, remember. So um, yeah, it was actually being sold to BP. Um, and I was like, a little bit annoyed by it after I learned about it like just recently and it was actually during a sharing session with Alfian Sa'ad um, so I work for WWF right um, so he was kind enough to like uh, have a sharing session with all of the greenies in Singapore so he was just saying that by the way this island was actually sold to BP um, for oil reclamation project and it was in the I think in the 40s or in the 30s I remember by one of the uh, MPs. Hmm. Sorry, not 40s, 50s, I think. How, how do you deal with this anger and how do you feel like it can be a driving force for you to push this platform forward? I, I used to I used to actually be okay with people calling me uh, other names. Like, you know, my name is Fredaus mm-hmm. and sometimes it gets very difficult for people to pronounce it. Um, and, and sometimes they have to, can I call you, you know, Freddy? 
because it's actually English sounding and it's F, so it's like same, same but different. And what's going on? I was like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's easier for you. But now I realize that it's such an insult to me and my culture and who I am because it's convenient. But it's convenient for you, right? Just because it's convenient for you. So I don't want to. I don't want to change who I am anymore, or I want to be able to retain my identity and who I am, um, and not at your and not at my expense, right? And for your convenience as well. So I think that is one example of um, me trying to set foot and to to, to be able to uh, to claim my identity lah. And of course, um, for me, it's always telling uh, my peers, my friends, people I meet to say that you know we we really have to um, claim our identity and preserve what we have. And I think more and more youths are trying are, are seeing that now, which is what I'm thankful for, or at least in my circle. So I see that um, you know they want to hear the original narrative of, for example, Chinatown, how it was life back then, etc. So when you go to a shop house, it's not like a, a cool looking shop house, right? But I want to know like how was the life back then when it was like a cafe, and how did they live? You know things like that. Um, Things that need to be preserved, things that we need to acknowledge. Um, it's it's. I think it's a uphill task, but I believe the government is also trying to do something, and uh, NHB is trying to do something as well. But I I hope that other youth, right, the, the the different generations, like the fourth generation, third generation, like mine, can actually step up and share their stories and tell the stories. Uh, is maybe it's not orang laut, but it could be you know a piece of history that no one knew that only retains within the family that can actually be shared and I want to encourage that because from then collectively then we know um, these are the stories of Singapore the real stories of Singapore which are untold mm. and I think you're perfectly positioned to do this because you know you you clearly are a very creative person and I feel that this uh, this rhetoric of preserving history, preserving culture has been, you know, talked about for so many years. But I think it really takes people who are very creative to kind of make this happen, make this a reality. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you to call me creative. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, when I came across your platform, I was like, oh my God, no one is doing anything. <laughs> Like, obviously, for a lot of people, I think the first thing that comes into their minds would be, how are you going to make a profit out of it, uh, out of it, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's scarcity. That's the thing. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I first came up with the idea of Singapore noodles, and I shared it with one of my friends, my friend was like, but how are you going to make money? You know what I mean? Mm. But for me, but it was like, some something that I would do even if there was no money involved, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So even for Orang Laut, right? To be honest, when we first started the first month, we were in the reds um, because we, seafood is so expensive. I didn't know how to price the food. I'm like, ah, we're losing money. And I was like, oh my God, we're pricing it wrongly. So I was like, you know what? Um, I'm just going to go with the flow and learn along the way because I, I, I don't know what's the perfect solution or formula for this, right? And I'm really new to this. And I think I'm, what I'm happiest is that I, I am able to, um, so I think financially give my parents a little bit more money, um, mm. you know, for the month so they can actually buy this, buy something nice for themselves, uh, eat, um, eat the things that they want. Lah. So, um, also, I don't come from a very rich family, as, as what I've mentioned to you. Um, 
and I, I do what I can to actually sustain. And I'm like, so my parents, uh, my mom is actually the housewife of the house. Um, my dad, um, he used to be a chef in, in a cargo ship. So he, he travels over the world, but he was in a cargo ship lah, like about six months and then he would adopt at like a certain country. And you just, you know, that's his way of traveling, but especially just by ship. Um, so recently he, he fell. Uh, uh, while he was working and he's not allowed to work anymore so he's working as a security guard which doesn't pay a lot so of course a lot of the responsibilities comes to, come to me right to pay the bills um, you know support my family etc um, uh, which is fine because they've done so much for me mm. and um, I think I wanted to also give them like a sense of um, I don't know belonging a sense of pride as well so when you do this uh, whatever little money that they get, right, of this, uh, this the tiny little, I mean, sometimes we, we do earn like uh, $100, $200 per person, like my mom and my dad, and they're just happy to share. They're just like, oh, yeah, we got, we got a little bit of income. And and, it, and I think it's not about, and they acknowledge that it's not about the, the, the huge income that we are trying to achieve. We're not trying to achieve that. But for me, my objective is to tell to share the story, which is very important, and to share the cuisine. And um, for them, it's, you know, validating their efforts and, and it's being validated, which is what I'm happy about. So any comments or reviews, I will just share with them. And I have to explain to my mom word by word in English to Malay. Uh, and she's just uh, smiling from year to year. I think it's really beautiful what you're doing and I, I really hope that your business will do well. Thank you for talking to me. You know, I really enjoy our session. So that was my conversation with my guest, Fadawa Sani, the founder of Orang Laut SG. You can find out more about the work that he does and try his family's food through their website, oranglaut.sg, or follow them on Instagram at oranglaut.sg. Also, if you have subscribed to the Singapore Noodles newsletter, you'll be getting show notes in your inboxes with photographs that Fadawa's very generously provided. So that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. To stay updated, you can also check out the website at sgpnoodles.com or follow us on sgpnoodles on Instagram. Also, Christmas is coming and if you're looking for Christmas gifts, then do check out our planner for the new year, which is your guide to learning about festivals that we celebrate in Singapore. And it also encourages you to cook traditional food through the year. Every purchase of the planner goes to making Singapore Noodles a more sustainable platform and it enables the time and resources that go into documenting these stories and these recipes. As always, thank you so much for all the love that you've given me and Singapore Noodles and I hope that this platform has inspired you to keep Singaporean heritage alive in your own way. <laughs>